so good to be back together, isn't it? Not really. Yeah, it's good to be back together. <laughs> well, welcome back to Rosina. Where's Rosina? There's Rosina, guys. It's little Sophia, Nick, you have to move out the way a little bit. Oh, it's only for me, really. Yeah. It's little Sophia right there, guys. Rosina's just come back from maternity leave. And, uh, wow, what a, what a little chat, eh? So, well done. Welcome back, Z. So good to have you here. Let's give her a welcome, guys. Z is a huge part of Constantinburg and what we are as a local church. Man, I missed you, Z, and so good to have you back together. Um, I get to carry on our Exodus 3 series, our Exodus series, week 3, and uh, this has been one of those weeks when you prepare for a sermon that it really uh, kind of gets you, uh, it speaks to you, but probably more than just speaking to me, it's, it's challenged me. I, I don't know that I know exactly why it's challenged me, maybe it's because it's something we don't maybe talk that much about, maybe it's because it speaks directly to my experience as a Christ follower. My everyday experience as someone who's trying to follow God, who's trying to follow Jesus, is trying to navigate what it means to be a Christ follower in this world at this time. And I, I pray whether you know, you've been following Jesus just for, for days or even for decades, I'm trusting that God used this message to speak to you, to encourage you, to challenge you like He has me. So as I said, we're in week three Thank you for joining us. If you have been joining us, uh, I've got little doubts over the, even the last two weeks and this week and as we've gone into Exodus, that God is at work shaping you, that God is at work forming you. Exodus is one of those remarkable books in the Bible where you can so easily see the timelessness of scriptures. And I spoke about this in week one. It's like, it's like as you follow this book, you can see, wow, God is speaking to them. God is speaking to me. So easy to see and I know as we track, we're going to be transformed for God's glory. There's so much to learn about God, who He is, what He's about in the world. There's a lot to learn about the gospel, what it means to be saved, what it means to be rescued, what it means to follow God. So much to learn about our salvation and also our mission. What we've been saved from and what we've been saved for and what God calls us to and invites us into in this great adventure. Maybe you're not yet a Christ follower. Maybe, you know, you're just looking in. Someone invited you to come along. Absolutely awesome to have you here. Uh, I, I'm, I'm so sure that you're going to be learning a lot about God. You're going to be learning a lot about what it means to, to follow Jesus. Uh, you may have some thoughts. You may have some ideas. Some may be right. Some may be slightly skewed. But I know that as you track with us, and I want to encourage you to keep coming for the whole of the Exodus series. Because I think by the end, you're going to have a really good idea of what it means to follow Jesus and exactly what He's inviting you into. Okay, so before I carry on, next weekend is a long weekend. Yay! Yay. But, and, and what we're planning is we're having a Burgos Roll picnic at, at Takai Forest. You'll see for pics, we did, a, we did a, a family picnic prior thing a little earlier in the year. It was absolutely amazing. You know, as a pastoral team, we decided a while ago, that one of the big things that God's doing in the world and, and in local churches and in this local church is that He's forming a family. He's pulling a bunch of people together from all over the place and He's forming and forging us to be brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And we've all got a role to play in that. But if we're going to really live that up, we've got to get to know each other a little bit. And we're not all going to be best buddies. But we can certainly get to know a whole bunch of people and really have a sense like, I feel at home here. Like, I know people here. People know me. People know when I'm not around. And we start to, to really love and care. And this is one of the ways that we do that. So we decided uh, ages ago as an eldership team that we are going to put in our calendar on Sundays. Every couple of times a year, we're going to take a Sunday out and we're going to do a picnic. We're gonna, well, we're not taking a Sunday out. We're, we're moving it from being a gathering like this into a gathering of community and friendship. So if you're looking to make some new connections, you want to get to know some people, this is how you do it. If you are already connected and you know a whole bunch of people, then think about those who don't and make sure you get there. And you, and you be that relationship, be that friendship, draw people in to this beautiful family, Constantinburg. So as it says, we're going to provide all the goodies, and you just come, you bring your own salads and drinks, and we'll provide the brewery rolls and the rest of it. Please, please come along, it's going to be awesome. So you right up front, I won't be there. Oh, I know. I'm doing one of my best buddies' weddings uh, up country, so that's going to be a real privilege for us. Okay, so here we are in Exodus. We're looking at the first nine plagues that hit Egypt. Oh man, I totally forgot. I was meant to buy nine chocolates. And I totally, totally forgot. I wanted to give out prizes. Sorry, we got kitty snacks. Biscuits. Nine biscuits. Oh man, I'm so disappointed in myself. Um, we're covering Exodus 7 to 10 today. We're not going to go through every verse. But we're going to look at these nine plagues, these nine disasters that fell upon Egypt when Pharaoh refused to let the Hebrew people go. What we're going to do is I want to read ten verses out of, out of those three chapters that kind of give us a picture of the pattern that we see. And we'll watch a short video that, that kind of talks us through the whole of those chapters. And then I want to answer two questions. I want to say, what is God doing during these plagues? What's the big idea? And then secondly, I want us to really apply this message to our lives by seeing what we can learn about our followership of God, our followership of Jesus. So as I said, I'm going to read these 10 verses before we carry on. I'm going to give away nine fake chocolates. To, only one each, hands up, no shouting up. Who can name one of the nine plagues? The 10th plague is the death of the firstborn. So the other nine, no shouting up. Okay, go for it. Locusts. Oils, frogs, flies, blood, blood in the mouth. How many have we got? Tell them know. Gnats, that's right. Gnats. I wrote this this morning and I can get to six and that's a double check. There was this hail and hail and fire. Yeah. There was darkness, well done, Kali. So blood, flies, gnats, boils, darkness, locusts, frogs, hail, and then disease that came upon that. The livestock. Well done, guys. You, some of you would have got a chocolate. Oh, buy yourself one in the way. Okay, verse 14 of Exodus 7. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. 
This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in your hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and his officials, and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt, but the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Okay, let's let's play that clip and you can get an idea of the rest of these three chapters of scripture. It's about five minutes. Give it two seconds. Okay. After meeting with the Israelites to let them know that God had heard their cries and was coming to their rescue, Moses and Aaron delivered God's message to Pharaoh. Let my people go. But Pharaoh refused because God had hardened his heart. Instead of showing mercy, Pharaoh was cruel and made the work and lives of the Hebrew slaves even more difficult than before. The showdown was at hand between God and Pharaoh. Who was the true king? Who was all-powerful? Whose command could not be ignored? God told Moses not to fear, but instead prepare to witness his mighty power as he forced Pharaoh to let his people go. The next morning, Moses again came to Pharaoh, and again Pharaoh refused to let the Hebrew people go. So, at the Lord's command, Moses told Aaron to stretch his staff over the Nile River, and the waters turned to blood, causing the fish to die, and the waters to become undrinkable. But Pharaoh's heart hardened further, so God sent a second plague. This time, frogs covered every inch of the land. This became so unbearable that Pharaoh begged Moses and Aaron to make this plague stop. The morning of the following day, Moses returned to Pharaoh and commanded him to let God's people go. And again, Pharaoh refused. God had Aaron strike the dust with his staff, and gnats swarmed the land, covering both people and animals. When Moses came to Pharaoh again the next day, Pharaoh again refused Moses' request to let the people go. In response, God sent a fourth plague, flies. Like a black cloud, flies covered every part of Egypt, except where the Hebrew slaves lived. 
spoiling the land and entering every Egyptian's house, including Pharaoh's palace. Once again, Pharaoh pleaded with Moses and Aaron to end this plague. God sent Moses to Pharaoh again, but Pharaoh still refused to listen to God. The next day, God sent a severe plague upon the Egyptians that killed their donkeys, camels, herds, and flocks. This hardened Pharaoh's heart even more against God. Again, God sent Moses to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh refused God's command yet again, Moses threw soot into the air, and it became dust that covered the land of Egypt, causing all the people in Egypt to break out into painful sores. Pharaoh's heart, hardened by God, made it so he continued to disobey God's command to let the Hebrew people go. God told Moses to go back to Pharaoh and warn him that the coming plagues would be much more destructive and harsh than the last. But Pharaoh still wouldn't listen. When Moses stretched his hand toward heaven, God sent a hailstorm unlike any that had ever been seen before in the land. It destroyed plants and homes and killed animals and people. Pharaoh confessed that he was wrong, but again his heart hardened and he rejected God's command. Then God sent a plague of locusts. These insects covered the land and devoured the last remaining plants and trees in Egypt, leaving the once lush farmland surrounding the Nile a barren desert wasteland. Pharaoh was still unwilling to release God's people. So at God's command, Moses stretched his hand up to the sky and a heavy darkness swallowed Egypt. For three days, no Egyptian saw another person or left their house. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron so he could try to make a deal to end the plague of darkness. Pharaoh said everyone could go to worship the Lord if all the Hebrew people left their flocks and herds behind. When Moses and Aaron refused this offer, Pharaoh commanded them never to come back or they would be killed. With the people still enslaved, God told Moses there would be one final plague. A plague so severe, Pharaoh would have no choice but to free God's people. Okay, there you go, just on screen duty quickly. So that's, that's the overview of what's happening. So let me answer that first question. What is God doing during these plagues? And the answer is, so much. So much is happening. I mean, these chapters are so jam-packed with interesting nuggets, exchanges, things to learn. I, I sincerely want to encourage you if, you, if you want to figure out what to do this week in terms of just spending time with God's Word, Exodus 7, 8, 9, going into Exodus 10, are just a brilliant way to, to just really reflect, consider what God may be showing and teaching you. really will be a good thing for you to do. But I want to just pick up two big themes that I'm going to carry uh, throughout the series, but also for today. The first thing God's doing is He's demonstrating His power. He's demonstrating His power. Verse 16, but I have raised you up. For this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
I mean, we know from the previous two weeks that throughout the book of Exodus, God is making himself known. I mean, back in week one, I spoke about a kind of amnesia that we suffer from as people, as human beings. It causes us to forget God. Causes us to forget what He's like, what His true nature is, what He's what He's really up to in the world. And this this amnesia, this forgetting of who God is, causes us to become enslaved to a bunch of other things that are far less than God and far less of what God desires for us. So so God's revealing Himself to rescue the Israelites. We need to have a right view of God. And I think. This has been something that's been challenging for us during COVID. I, I don't know about, about you guys, but sometimes not gathering together regularly. I, I don't know what your rhythms have been. Some of you have been gathering in life groups. Some have been joining online. Some couldn't bear the thought of looking at a screen again on a Sunday morning. And I get it's been different for so many different people. But the truth is we, we tend to forget who God is. Just slowly and steadily. That's why we come together regularly. But it's not only that we forget. The truth is, we are being constantly shaped and formed by our culture. All day, every day, we're being told to value certain things, to look for certain things, to orientate our lives around certain things, and those things are not God. And so last week, God spoke about who God is, what God's like, the names of God. Well, that self-revelation continues kind of this week as we get to see the power of God on display. God is demonstrating His supreme power and omnipotence over all other gods, all other powers of Egypt, including Pharaoh himself, who was held as a god. And, And God's doing it both for the Egyptians and for the Israelites' sake, and I think also for ours today. God sets Himself apart as superior to every other power that we can hold dear. The Egyptians worshipped an impressively large pantheon of gods. I mean, it's not even sure to be clear which god there are so many. It's quite confusing. But there's at least three deities associated with the Nile. You have Osiris, you've got Nu, you've got Happy. You know, Osiris, the god of the underworld, representing death, resurrection, cultural fertility. Happy, the god of fertility. Hecate, he was represented by the frog, either the head or the body of a frog, and he represented fertility and childbirth. The gnats could have been directed against Seth, the god of the earth that was worshipped. I mean, and many deities were represented by cattle, the heads of cattle, different animals. For example, Hathor, the goddess of love, beauty, and joy. Through these plagues, God was systematically showing the Egyptians and showing us that He is superior to every other power, every other god, every other idol around which we can and often do build our lives. It's also kind of fascinating when you read it to see the counterfeits. Then you pick that up in the beginning. The magicians of the land would would kind of do exactly what Aaron and, and Moses had done. And it would be like, oh, what's that about? And so it caused this hard to get heart. But then even his heart to get hard. But then even Aaron's snake, although they all could produce snakes, Aaron's snake eventually spoiled up all those other snakes. And it's like God saying, even, even in my power, I swallow up the power of these counterfeit gods. You know, as the plagues unfold, quickly gets to the point where actually they can no longer do what Moses and Aaron are doing. That something's going on here. By the time we get to the gnats, the magicians are the ones saying to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But he still 
doesn't listen, his heart is hardened. I think, I think through these counterfeits, God's teaching Pharaoh, he's teaching the Hebrews. By the way, the Hebrews and the Israelites, they're the same people. They refer to themselves as the Hebrews, but the Egyptians would refer to them as the Hebrews. And I think he's also teaching up that, that although these false gods, these counterfeit gods, these objects of worship can appear to be divine, or can appear to be worthy of our worship, or can appear to have real power in our lives, ultimately they are inferior to God in every way. And God in His power swallows them up. Only He is truly able to satisfy. You see, God's reminding them who He is. Okay, I'm going to circle back to that in a little while. Secondly, what is God doing through these plagues? Well, I think He's making a distinction between Israel and the Egyptians. It's quite clear. Verse chapter 8.23, I will make a distinction between my people and your people. You know, when the flies over on Egypt, for example, Goshen, the home of the Hebrews, was totally left untouched. And as these plagues continued, there was a clear distinction between Egypt and Israel. And Israel was spared so much of the disasters that fell upon the Egyptians. God wants to make a clear distinction between those who are His and those who are not His. He's demonstrating His faithfulness to the covenant He made with Abraham. Abraham is the, the father of the Hebrews, the father of, his, of the Israelites. These are all of His offspring that have now formed this nation. God made a promise to Abraham and He's staying true to His promise. Staying true to His covenant. And it's important for us to remember that as Exodus unfolds, that God remains true to His promises and His covenants. And it's clear that God leverages His power to rescue those who are His. I'm going to pull these two threads along as we go, but let me get to the second question, which is, what can we learn about our followership? As Christ followers, as those who follow God, what do we learn from, from these first nine plagues? And for the rest of the message, I want us to look at Pharaoh's response as, to the workings of God as kind of a, a prototype for our own lives. I need to make some disclaimers here because I don't always like to do this. I don't often like to preach like this where you, you use a figure as a prototype for our lives for a few reasons. One is, is sometimes we tend as as I guess westernized uh, people, is to see ourselves at the center of every biblical story. You know, like, oh, we're David. <laughs> no one wants to be the sniveling brother or the, you know, we just, we just place ourselves right there, slap bang, we are the hero. So that's a danger. I don't want us to start thinking that. Um, you know, there's a danger that we see Exodus, you know, even all the New Testament is just, you know, stories that kind of foreshadow something today, but they're not. None of these stories happened. God demonstrated His power. God did mighty acts in actual history. And so we don't turn them all into kind of metaphors. That's, that's the other danger. And then, of course, it's not a perfect science. There's always shortcomings to you know, a metaphor or, or doing this. So just be aware of those three things. But all that being said, I'm going for it anyway. Disclaimer's done. So one of the ways of looking at the story is through the lens of captivity. Just approach it from the lens of captivity. God's people find themselves in captivity and God acts on their behalf to free them. And, and when you look at it through that lens, Pharaoh can become a prototype for us and our lives as Christ followers as God continually invites us 
into greater and greater freedom as we follow Him from all different kinds of captivity. So let's get practical for a moment. I mean, thinking about my own life, thinking about us, thinking about maybe the time that we're living in, what are some of the powers that we could, you know, be in captivity to? What are some of the things that God may be at work in our lives, inviting us to find freedom from? Now, I've just picked a few here. I'm probably projecting onto you stuff that I'm thinking about and what God's doing in me. You may identify with some of them. And God may be actually, you might recognize that God's at work in your life in a completely different way. But I think the more you, you reflect, I think we'll find as Christ followers that God is at work in every single one of our lives, in one way or the other, inviting us into greater freedom. So generally I'm talking about things like idolatry. There are many things we idolize. There are many things that you idolize in your life. There's powers, desires, possessions, ideals that we effectively orientate ourselves around and our lives around just like the Egyptians did. The Egyptians had certain beliefs about certain things and their whole lives revolved around what they desired and what they believed. Now, I know with our Western sensibilities, we don't like to think about idols or we can't really identify with what they are, but they are false gods. I mean, it's things that we give our best energy to, our best time to, our resources to, our desires to. In every way, this is worship. We worship. We demonstrate the worth that we put on things in our lives through the energy, the time, the efforts, the lengths we'll go to to make sure these things in our lives are ours. That is worship. Worship. And so we, we may find ourselves worshipping idols in different ways. So here's two maybe possible areas that have been on my mind. Maybe different for you as I said. The first one is, is money or, or wealth. You know, one of the areas of captivity for us could be this. It, it's part of that triumvirate of money, sex, and power, or, or what else is it? Treasure, measure, and pleasure. But the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that for, for Christ followers, the love of money will be one of, if not the greatest counterfeit God that you will ever have to contend with in your life. The power of money is not to be taken lightly for Christ followers. Because money is such a good comfort God. It can offer you such a strong sense of security, identity, safety, worth. That many of us will find ourselves desiring these things and find them in a counterfeit God that ultimately will not see us through. That ultimately will fail us. You know, Matthew 6, it says, No one can serve two masters. Either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, if you want to do a self-order for yourself, there's a self-order that never lies. It's your bank statements. Now, when you follow your own personal money trail, if I look at my bank statement and I follow you know, what I'm doing with my money, it often gives me a very clear picture of who or what. I'm orientating my lives around, or, or who or what I, I really value, who or what I'm beginning potentially to worship. I think it's so relevant for us even in this pandemic season. I mean, I think for a few reasons. The one thing is, I think we've seen that wealth and money is not as steadfast as we always thought. 
Something can happen in the world, and just like that, boom, things can get turned on their heads. And we cannot depend on our finance or our wealth. They are not worthy of our worship. But really, two things can happen to us. One, we either, we either make the adjustments and orientate our lives no longer around finance, but around God, and we, we bring our finances into submission to God. On the other hand, we can double down. I just say, no, no, I'm going to give myself even more to this thing, so that even when something happens, and we just double down. Here's another something that, that God might want to free us from, or something we could give ourselves to. It's, it's isolation and convenience. Now, I think about that during this, this lockdown period. I think especially for us as Constantinople. I mean, out of all the churches I know, we've probably met the least, you know? Not having our own venue, the school not being open to us. It's meant that we've We've really gone through a long season of isolation. And, and I think lockdown can do two things for us. can impact us to say, you know, it's caused so much inconvenience all the time that in every sphere of our life other than work, we, don't, we no longer tolerate any inconvenience. I've been inconvenienced enough, that's it. From now on, I only do what's convenient for me. And that's how we kind of take control and we like to cope. You might be on the other, other end of the spectrum where you've kind of totally enjoyed the forced isolation. It's actually been quite nice to just have some, some chill time and hey, we all know we've benefited of our families, etc., etc. And, and, and we're really struggling with the idea of kind of re-entering into, you know, culture, into society, into, into serving others, into being regularly part of a greater community. You know, things like gathering on Sundays. I know I'm preaching to the choir right now. Uh, maybe it's a life group connection, but maybe it's serving and participating beyond ourselves to see the well-being and the flourishing of others. Not, not only talking about here in the local church, I'm talking about in the world as we live our lives for God's glory, as we seek to see God's kingdom come. We might find ourselves actually a little bit trapped in this isolation and this convenience. Okay, I know this is not maybe that totally feel-good moment we all wanted on our first week back, but man, God's Word is so beautiful and so powerful. There can be other things that can capture that year. I've just mentioned these three. But the big question is, what do we do when God calls us out of these potential captivities into greater freedom? Well, let's look at Pharaoh. God spoke to Pharaoh through Moses, Aaron, and the plague. I think God often speaks to us through His Word, through the Spirit, through other Christ followers. I'm just going to pick out a few of his responses. In chapter 7, verse 22, when the blood happens, it just says his heart became hard and he wouldn't listen. I know there's an element that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but I think these truths still apply. Then in verse 8, chapter 8, 15, when the frogs came, you get Mo asking Moses, Pharaoh says, Moses, pray for relief. But then as soon as the relief comes, his heart hardens and he just carries on the way he was before. Then you've got the gnats. And this is where even his magicians are telling him, this is the finger of God, but he won't listen. He just won't listen. Then you do notice there is a shift. There's a slight change in his behavior, but maybe not in his, in his heart. In 8.22 and 32, when the flies come, Pharaoh tries to bargain with God. You know, he bargain with Moses. He says, okay, you guys can go, but don't go too far. Okay, you can go, but don't take your animals in the flocks. Okay. You know, the men can go, but not, these are all things that happen. And so he tries to bargain with God, but God's not into bargaining. God knows what's best for us. And then he says, now pray for me. But again, after the flies leave, his heart grows hard. And then when the hail comes, he even recognizes sin. And he says, 
you know, we've sinned and Moses prayed for us. But again, the heart just becomes hard when the trouble or difficulty comes. Can you see yourself in Pharaoh? Can you identify with, with this hard attitude in any way? I mean, I can. I've done my few feelings of bargaining with God around certain things. Oh God, I'm in the heat of a moment. It's so hectic. Just let me get to the other side and then circumstances change and it's gone. We just carry on living our lives. We haven't surrendered freshly to God. We haven't invited God to really transform us, to renew us, to be more Christ-like. That's what He's inviting us to do. And let's look at the outcome. In the end, and this is what we're looking at next week, is that tenth and final plague. Well, not next week, the week after, because we're technically next week. And we'll carry on from week four, two weeks' time. Death is coming. The death of the firstborn is coming. We, are, we need to understand, as Christ followers, there are consequences, real-life consequences, to not surrendering to God. To not allowing God to transform us. not responding with a humble, malleable heart of flesh to our God and Father who's inviting us into greater and greater levels of freedom. Galatians 6, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now this text, it's, it's radically different for those of you who may not yet ever have placed your faith in Christ than those of us who already are Christ followers. Because there's, there's different kinds of captivity that we find ourselves in. You know, before you come to faith in Christ, before you place uh, your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to be reconciled with God, to be born again as the scriptures teach us, you are facing the most deadly and destructive captivity you will ever face. You are captive to sin. And the power of sin, the wages of sin is death, teaches Romans 6. And so for you, the call is to come to Christ, maybe for the very first time. And say, Christ, I receive your life, your death, your resurrection, as payment for my life, as, as God's way of inviting me to freedom from the captivity to sin and alienation from the one who created me and knows me. I mean, Colossians 1.13 says, For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The question for you is, are you ready to receive Christ's freedom? Are you ready for Christ to set you free? But for Christ followers, who are already part of this kingdom of light, there are still consequences for us as we continue in captivity and we continue to not allow God to transform us and to shape us. It impacts our spiritual life. It impacts our spiritual vitality. And if you continue to put money before Yahweh, it can severely dampen your spiritual health and vitality. It can cause you to miss out on, on being the blessing that God desires you to be to those around you. If you continue in porn, it's going to negatively impact your marriage relationship. And for you having a high view of all people created in the image and likeness of God. If you continue to orientate your lives around counterfeits and imitations and things that contrast God's word and desire for your lives, it's going to ne- negatively impact you as a Christ follower. 
You see, your character is shaped by your conduct. Who you're becoming is shaped by how you live your life, how you orientate your life, who you allow to dictate the direction of your life. So where does this leave us? I mean, that's the big question. What's the hope for us? Well, our hope lies in repentance. And this is the place Pharaoh never got to. He bargains, he listens, he wants to do things, but on his own terms. You know, he wants help in times of trouble, but when the good times come, he forgets. Repentance, it always sounds like a kind of negative word. It always sounds a bit heavy and, I don't know, a bit icky in our, in our culture maybe. But it's actually a word filled with grace. And it's filled with hope and it's filled with forgiveness. Now, I looked at the dictionary. We're getting to the end of the message. And, and the, the dictionary said sincere remorse or regret. That's what repentance is. But I think it's so much more than that. I think Pharaoh felt sincere remorse. There were times when he was like, ah, oh, this is terrible, I'm remorseful, but man, that wasn't enough. Sincere remorse or regret is not enough. Repentance means that we have a change of mind about something and we start to live in a completely different way. It's when we recognize that the voice of God is mercifully moving toward us as those that He loves, inviting us into life and life to the full. And repentance means saying yes to God and no to continuing in our own ways. It's when we recognize that there's fault lines in our affections, in our desires, in how we value something, in how we think about something, and deciding to agree with God's word. And when we have that change of mind, it leads us to a change of, of the way that we live behavior, and that is true repentance. And here's the really good news. You can repent about something over and over again. Fantastic news for me, and hopefully for some of you too. Hebrews 4 says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. Christ for that, there is enough grace for you. Time and time again, God will forgive you. There's hope, there's grace. And as you find that hope, as you find that grace, and as Christ empowers you, you start to build in some good practice, and you start to make some better decisions, you'll find victory and you'll move on to other things. So as we land, maybe the band can make their way back onto the stage. Let me land with this appeal to all of us. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus again today. Maybe if you're not yet a Christ follower, for the very first time, God's inviting you to freedom from captivity to sin, to be reunited in relationship with Him, the one who made you, the one who knows how to fulfill you, the one who knows how to bring you joy, and significance so that you know that you're loved and that you belong. Only God can give you those things in a way that truly satisfies. Christ followers, if you've been following God for days, you're probably in a better position than some who've been following God for decades. The trouble for us when we've been following God for decades is that we can grow a little bit over familiar with the work of God. We can grow a little bit comfortable, but today God is freshly calling us to surrender our lives to Him. It's not a bad thing. He's inviting us into greater and greater freedom and away from captivity. God can take your worst stain and make it as white 
as the snow. What a gospel. What a savior. We pray for us. God, we thank you as we gather together today that you are the God who takes us from captivity into freedom. You take us from slavery to so many things in this world that you lead us into the promised land. That you've got life and life to the full in store for us. And God, we can get caught up you, God, never relent in calling us and inviting us to greater and greater fear. And I pray our hearts would be soft. God, where our hearts have grown hard, where we've stumbled and fallen too many times to count, God, freshly, you, you've said you've given us a heart of flesh and a heart of stone. So God, this morning, our hearts are malleable before you. Cause us to look to you for freedom and grace. God, I particularly want to pray for parents this morning. Parents of all kinds of kids, especially kids that are in high school and, and beyond. God, I want to just pray for a dose of incredible wisdom and, and kindness upon all our parents as they, they navigate some, some really complex issues and conversations with their kids God, around some really important things. And I pray that you teach them and you teach us through your word, you just make it clear what it means for us to, to say yes to you, to take your invitation to life to the full, to free us, God, from, from the captivity that comes in this world as we forget your goodness. I'm going to land it right there. Let's, uh, let's stand together.